Well, some of you may have heard the term Christmas creep. Others of you have not. Christmas creep does not refer to your strange uncle who makes inappropriate comments at the Christmas dinner table. Uh, Christmas creep instead is the term used for how retailers push their Christmas sales a little bit earlier every year. So it gets a little bit earlier so that finally you're walking into the local hardware store and you see a giant inflatable Santa in like September. That's Christmas creep. Uh, All of us have noticed it. Some of us are bothered by it more than others are bothered by it. Some people don't mind. Uh, Some people are really annoyed. I read a study recently that suggested that 63% of Americans are annoyed when they see Christmas decorations up in the stores before Halloween. Uh, Maybe it reminds you of all the shopping you have yet to do uh, and all the shopping you have not yet done, but a lot of people are annoyed by it. On the other hand, some people feel just the opposite. There are some of you that love it, that love seeing Christmas come early. So the same study found that 27% of Americans have already started their Christmas shopping by Labor Day. And so you're on the ball, you're ready to get going early. The other 73% who have not started our shopping are annoyed by you 27% who have, uh, because we feel anxious and stressed out when we see you thinking about it so early. Uh, Whichever side of the spectrum you fall on, my guess is that by now you have kind of rounded a corner and you're thinking about Christmas. As soon as Thanksgiving sort of comes and goes, most of us start thinking about what we're going to eat at Christmas, where we're going to go, what presents we need to buy, how we're going to pay for all of it. And so we start processing all of that right now, at the end of November, if we haven't already. Because of that, because we are already thinking about travel, we're already thinking about presents, we're already thinking about Christmas from a material perspective and a personal perspective, I thought it'd be appropriate for the next few weeks to begin to prepare for Christmas from a spiritual perspective as well. That as we are getting ready for our homes and our families to celebrate Christmas, we want to begin to think about What does it mean spiritually to celebrate the Christmas season? All of us know that if we're not careful, Jesus can kind of slide into the background of Christmas when he really should be in the foreground. That is why we have sayings like Jesus is the reason for the season, because we want to remind ourselves that he is, that uh, Jesus is the reason we have Christmas in the first place. If we don't remind ourselves, we have a tendency to forget, and I think that's a shame, and the reason is twofold. One, because the incarnation reminds us in a powerful way of our salvation. For me, actually, my favorite holiday of the year is, in fact, Easter. When we wake up on Sunday morning on Easter, I feel probably more joyful than I do at any other time of the year. The reason is because Easter is the celebration of the culmination of God's work and salvation, that Jesus defeated death and sin and rose from the dead. So we come in here and we worship and we say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. However, without Christmas, there is no Easter. All right? If we didn't have the incarnation, we have no crucifixion or resurrection. When theologians talk about Christmas, they tend to use this word, incarnation that simply means what we're celebrating at Christmas is the idea of the enfleshment of the second person of the Trinity, that God became a man. So as you look throughout the New Testament, 
uh, the New Testament writers were constantly amazed by the idea that in Jesus Christ, we have somebody who is fully God and fully man. That is the mystery of the incarnation. When we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the earthly beginning of the work of our salvation through Jesus Christ. That if there's no incarnation, there's no resurrection. But I also think it's critical for us to remember Jesus at Christmas and focus on the incarnation for a second reason. And that is that for many people, Christmas is a mixture of joy and grief. Uh, Not everybody feels unadulterated joy going into the holiday season, if they're honest. Uh, About a week and a half ago, I was reading the articles about the 17th anniversary of the bonfire tragedy here in College Station. And every year when that anniversary passes, I can't help but think of those families who sit down at Thanksgiving and at Christmas every single year with an empty chair at the table. And they're not the only ones. There are some of you in this room that every single year you sit down with an empty chair. Or you sit down during the Christmas season and you feel an acute sense of loneliness because of somebody who is not there. Or maybe because the people who are there, those relationships are strained. Maybe you feel anxious and stressed about money. You feel stressed about your time. So for, for some people, maybe for most people, Christmas is this mixture of joy and grief. And the incarnation provides a powerful response to all of those feelings that we have at Christmas time of grief and anxiety and stress and relational strain. Because in the incarnation, we are assured that God is with us. Even in the midst of that pain, that's really what the incarnation is about, is that in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our alienation from God, in the midst of our separation from Him, God intervened by sending His Son. He sent Jesus to answer our aloneness and separation from Him. So the incarnation powerfully speaks to all of the things that we experience all throughout the year, but maybe even most acutely at Christmas time. And so uh, there's a sense in which it is deeply ironic that often we enter into Christmas and we feel stressed about other areas of our life, maybe more acutely than we do at other times, when, the, uh, when God's answer to grief and death and sin and pain is staring us in the face. So we're going to take the next few Sundays and we're going to celebrate Advent. Advent is the church word for the season that precedes Christmas comes from a Latin word that simply means the coming. We're going to celebrate the coming of Jesus and look at what does the coming of Jesus at Christmas mean for us as Christians? What does it mean when we say God is with us, that uh, God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is born as a baby? When we look at uh, Matthew and we look at the accounts of the birth of Jesus, We see this powerful statement that in the incarnation, God is with us to understand us, to communicate his love for us, and to save us. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the angel of the Lord talking to Joseph, announcing to Joseph why he should 
Go ahead and marry his fiancée, Mary, because the child that she is carrying, remember, is from the Holy Spirit. And he says, this child, uh, she, he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, the angel is quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where uh, Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies, there's going to be a child. This child will be born of a virgin, will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, that at Christmas we see God entering into our world. To say, I see you in your loneliness, I see you in your sin, I see you in your grief, and I have intervened to provide a solution. So that as we celebrate Christmas, the incarnation reminds us that God understands us completely, loves us unconditionally, and saves us graciously. He understands us completely. There's nothing you're experiencing that he has not experienced. He loves us unconditionally. Even in understanding us completely, he loves us unconditionally and fully. And then has intervened in Jesus Christ to save us graciously. Let's break those ideas down then for a few minutes this morning. The incarnation reminds us, first of all, that God understands us Completely. Everybody in this room wants to be understood. I want to be understood. You want to be understood. Uh, I, when I was growing up, uh, my dad was hard of hearing uh, for a long time, and he did not get hearing aids until he was well into his 40s. And so when we were kids, a lot of times we would say things and dad didn't understand because uh, he couldn't hear us well. Sometimes that worked to our advantage. So, for example, one time we were able to secure permission to build a large bonfire in our front yard because dad didn't quite hear what we were asking him <laughs> to do. Uh, but sometimes it was frustrating because you might come in and say something like, dad, can I go to the mall with my friends? And he'd go, what? Can you go to the ball with a prince? Right? And he would shout out something that had no connection to what we had actually said to him. And in those moments, it was frustrating for all of us to feel misunderstood. Uh, all of us have probably experienced this feeling in a drive-thru. Right? You drive through and you order the food, and you're not sure if they can hear you through that box, and you know you can't understand them, and your suspicions are confirmed when you get your food, and it doesn't resemble what you ordered. Being misunderstood is frustrating. That kind of misunderstanding can be a little bit funny. It's not funny, though, when the misunderstanding you feel is this feeling that uh, not that they don't hear me, but nobody gets me. Right? Maybe the people that are most important to me in my life, my family, my parents, my spouse, my closest friends, they can hear what I'm saying, but they don't understand the grief and the joy and the struggle of my heart. All right, so I say things and I am misunderstood. Every single one of us knows the feeling of being misunderstood or not understood. Every single one of us knows the feeling of thinking nobody gets what's going on inside of me. And even if I try to articulate it, people don't understand. I am alone in the universe. Nobody gets me. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, though, assures us that God gets you, that God understands you. The reason is this, because God became a man in Jesus Christ, and the Scripture tells us that Jesus experienced every temptation and struggle and trial that we experience. There's no basic experience of humanity that you have had that Jesus Christ has not had. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. 
The writer says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it feels like to be hungry and thirsty, to wonder where meals are going to come from. Jesus understands what it feels like to be betrayed by friends. He understands what it feels like to have grief at loss, right? To experience what it's like to have friends or family die, to have that empty chair at the table. Jesus knows that. Jesus even knows what it feels like to be facing your own death and not want to go there. So there's no basic experience of humanity that you have that he has not felt because he is one of us. That the incarnation tells us that Jesus Christ is fully God, but fully human. Born in a particular location, at a particular place, who experienced family struggles, who experienced financial challenges, who experienced temptation, just like you and me. St. Augustine, the great Christian theologian, put it this way, man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. If you grieve, if you're alone, if you feel misunderstood, Jesus understands. God understands us completely. And even knowing what he would experience as a man, Jesus chose to enter our world and become one of us fully God and fully man. So you're understood. But not only are you and I understood, we are also loved. The incarnation tells us that God understands us completely, but he also loves us unconditionally. And what I mean is this, although God knows everything going on inside your heart and mind, he doesn't reject you as a result of it, right? Because it's not only that he knows your griefs and your, your private desires and your struggles, he also knows your sin. He knows all of those things that separate you from him. All of those ways in which you and I have said, you know what, I don't want to submit to God. I don't want to reflect God. He knows all of those things and still loves us. Right? If we're honest, most of us are more lovable at a distance than we are up close. Right? If you are married, you know this all too well, don't you? Many of those habits and characteristics of your beloved that seemed so endearing, when you were dating, become less endearing when you endure them day after day, year after year, right? So that when Shannon and I were dating, she loved all of my wisdom and ability to philosophize about everything in life. It's less enjoyable when it's everything in life, right? Every day. What's enjoyable and lovable from a distance isn't always lovable up close. And we all feel that if anybody really knew everything about me, they would reject me. Many years ago, I heard an interview by the late singer Rich Mullins. And the interviewer said, why have you never gotten married? Right? He was single his whole life. And I remember him making a statement to the effect of the reality is that most people, once they really get to know me, decide they don't want to marry me. 
I'm much more likable in front of people on a stage than I am up close. Right? Most of us, if we're honest, recognize that that is true of us. What the incarnation reminds us of is that God understands us completely, but he still loves us unconditionally, that even though we are sinful, even though we are prideful and lustful and greedy and angry and bitter and rebellious against God, he didn't turn away and reject us, but instead he sent Jesus, his son, to know us. It's the first verse that most of us memorized when we were kids. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why did he send Jesus? The verse tells us he loved us. He sent Jesus because he loved us. He cared about us so much that he was willing to give his only son, so we could have eternal life if we believe in him. The incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus were all grounded first in the love of God. Because even in our sin, God says, you're mine. He made us to be like him. He made us to know him. And so he loves us. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we stopped being sinners, not once we promised to never do it again. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sent Jesus to be born in Bethlehem because he loves us. As you look at the prophecies of the Old Testament Uh, the prophecies about the Messiah. One of the themes that emerges in a lot of these prophecies is the idea that God will tell Israel again and again, I'm about to act to save you, but not because you're good. He'll say, I am going to do something for you, but for my sake and not for your sake. So when you read, for example, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36 is this great promise of a new covenant. And God says, I will wash you clean. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. Instead of a heart of stone, I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll write my law on your heart and I will forgive you of your sins. And he says, I'm going to do all of that for you. But he says, not because you are good. In fact, he makes a point to say, Israel, you're not good. All you really have done is broken the covenant that we made. Remember, I gave you a bunch of laws and you violated all of them frequently and systematically. So you are not good. But he says, because I love you, I'm going to act. Right? And Ezekiel 36 is a promise that God is going to forgive and restore relationship to him. And ultimately, that promise finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 89 is another one. It's a messianic psalm. The psalmist talks about the covenant that God made with David, where he promised to David that he would send a descendant of David who would be a king, who would be a messianic king, who would reign in Jerusalem over God's kingdom. So the Davidic covenant paves the way for the concept of a Messiah. Psalm 89 talks about the Messiah. And God says to Israel, if his sons, that is, if the nation of Israel forsakes my law and does not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, 
nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. In other words, God says, I made a promise to restore you to me through a descendant of David. And although you disobey me, I will not violate my word to you because he loves us. And so God, even in the Old Testament, begins to prophesy that there's going to be a restoration for the nation of Israel and then ultimately a restoration that will extend to the entire human race through Jesus Christ. And so out of his love, he sends Jesus to restore people who are unlovable in what we do. So the incarnation reminds us that God fully understands us, God loves us unconditionally, and then thirdly, God saves us graciously. Right? Not only does he understand us and love us, he actually decided to intervene to save us. That's what Advent reminds us about. We are anticipating the celebration of the entrance into the world of Jesus where God began the process in Jesus' life of saving us. God intervened. He didn't just look at a distance and say, I really love them, but I wish there was something I can do, but there's nothing I can do. Instead, he actually intervened. He acted. About a month or so ago, I was sitting in our living room, and one of my kids came in and said, Hey, Dad, uh, can you show me where the Band-Aids are? And I said, Sure. Why do you need a Band-Aid? Is somebody injured? Did you cut yourself? And uh my daughter, this is my, my middle child, she said, no, nobody's hurt. She paused and she said, do you think it's possible to bandage a slug? And uh, I said, I, I doubt it. Like, I doubt it. Maybe that's something you could do, but I, I kind of doubt it. And, and I said, why are you asking this question? Turns out they had found an injured slug on the sidewalk, trying to make its way close to the house again. And they took pity upon the slug and wanted to save it and bandage it. So we, we talked about it. I explained why that probably wouldn't work, why a Band-Aid wouldn't stick to a slug. And even if it did, it might kill the slug and not save it, right? So we talked all of this through. Uh, I still kind of wish we had tried, but that's a whole other story. So why do I tell this story? I kind of lost actually my train of thought thinking about this. All right. Here's, here's my point. What motivates a person to decide that they want to intervene to save a slug? Well, some kind of love in their heart. As misdirected and confused as that love was, they had a love in their heart that said, I want to care for this creature. Right? It's not too dissimilar from what we see in the scripture when God sees us. Sinful, rebellious, unlovable, turning away from God. And he intervenes to save us by his power. What's the difference between us and a slug? Really, the only difference in our value is that God says we're valuable. God created us in his image to know him, to reflect him. And then when we disobeyed, he didn't give up, but said, those are, those are my people. And he intervened to save. We are valuable because God has declared us to be valuable. And the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a bold statement by God that you are so valuable to me that I will give my son to pay the penalty for your sin, to become one of you, 
There is no other religion on earth in which God does this. Actually humbles himself to become one of us so we can be saved from our sin against him. So God intervened to save us because he loves us. Matthew chapter 1, back in the announcement that the angel made to Joseph. The angel said to Joseph, Mary will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is a Greek translation of the Old Testament Yeshua, which you probably know as Joshua. Same name. It means Yahweh saves. Right? And so the angel told Joseph, Joseph, you're going to name this child not after yourself. You're going to name him Jesus. God saves because his purpose is to save the people from their sins. Now, if you had asked anybody in the first century, what did they need saving from? They actually would have said, we need to be saved from the Romans. We need to, to have a political salvation. We need a better leader. Right? They didn't have a ballot box they could go and vote out Caesar. All right, so they would have said, we need a better leader. But what you see is, as God says, my solution is not to send you somebody to immediately overthrow the Romans, but there's a problem that has to be answered before any of that can happen. And that problem is you have sinned against me. All right, so as you look at the Old Testament, you do see these promises of a kingdom to come, but there's a big barrier, and the barrier is us being able to join that kingdom. And the reason we can't join God's kingdom is because we have decided we don't want to be subject to it. And so Jesus comes, and God says he will save his people from their sin. Isaiah chapter 9, one of the great prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. When Isaiah was written, the people of God were experiencing judgment because of their sin. Right? Isaiah began writing, in fact, before the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed. Excuse me, he began writing shortly after the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed, which it was in 722 BC, destroyed by Assyria. And then some 100 years later, the southern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Babylon, right? Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The people of God are taken into exile. So Isaiah is writing during this very dark period of the history of Israel, during the exile. And in all of the prophets, there are all of these reminders of why they are at this point. And it fundamentally is because you disobeyed God. You broke the law. You worshiped idols. You ran away from God. And so you're experiencing judgment. But in all of the prophets, there is also this promise of hope. And here in Isaiah 9, you have this beautiful promise that one day a king will come. A child will be born. And that child will set up a new kingdom of peace and righteousness forever and ever. And all who are aligned with him will be able to be a part of that kingdom. But as we see in Isaiah as well, there's still a problem. 
and that is that our sin has to be cleared out of the way. So as you go to Isaiah 53, for example, you'll see this beautiful poem about the suffering servant, that that child to be born, that child who's going to be king, Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that God gave his son to eventually save the world from death and sin. But before that kingdom could begin, our sin had to be taken out of the way. And so at the incarnation, God begins this process of saving us through Jesus Christ that would culminate with the resurrection itself, that Jesus would take on us, all on him, all of our sin, and then rise again three days later in a demonstration of his victory over sin, victory over death, and a promise that he would one day return. So as we move toward Christmas, we remember that God understands us completely. He loves us unconditionally. And then in Jesus Christ, He saves us graciously so that for everybody who believes in Jesus Christ, the answer to our grief, the answer to our sin, the answer to the fear of death, the answer to the loneliness we feel is that one day death will die. Loneliness will be replaced with perfect intimacy with God. Sin will be overcome with righteousness. And our alienation from God will go away and we will be restored to him so that the season of Advent provides for us an opportunity even as we enter into the season with this mixture of joy and grief it's an opportunity to remember that our joy comes from Jesus and Jesus Christ represents a promise that all of our grief and sin and sadness will one day be dispensed with. So that in the midst of those moments of anxiety and fear and grief and loneliness, we come back to this, that God understands. God knows everything going on in my heart. And he still loves me. And he's working even now to complete the process of salvation until the day Jesus will return. And for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we get the opportunity to live with him forever in a kingdom of peace and righteousness forevermore. That's the message of the incarnation. So this morning as we close, what we're going to do is we're going to light the first candle of Advent. Uh, It's the prophecy candle that symbolizes hope symbolizes the hope that began at the first coming of Jesus and the hope of the joyful anticipation of his return. Because we recognize that in Jesus, God is saying, I see you, I understand you, I've saved you in Jesus Christ. And one day that salvation will be complete when Jesus returns to set up the kingdom that God promised to his people. And the kingdom that everybody who believes in Jesus will have the opportunity to participate in. So we're going to light the candle and then we'll close in a song of worship. Father, we praise you that you are a gracious and merciful God. 
who even in our sin and our rebellion against you chose to intervene through Jesus Christ. We praise you that at this season of Christmas we have the opportunity to remember him and all that he has done for us so that we can have eternal life. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be focused on you this season, even in the midst of uh, busyness and all of the preparations for family and for presence and for celebration, that we would keep Jesus at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. We thank you for this time, and we pray, allow us to go into the world and to faithfully and graciously proclaim the good news. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.